This year, we will celebrate the 242nd anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And that's a long time. For two and a half centuries, our country has been guided by the ideas our founding fathers developed. We live by those principles. We love those principles. They define who we, as Americans, are. But what if, instead of 200 years, it had been 1,500 years? Not 9 or 10 generations, but 60 or 70 generations. Do you not think that those principles would really define us and should define us as a people? We've been studying the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. We've reached that important point in the life of the early church where the emphasis changed from Old Testament Jewish believers becoming New Testament, New Covenant believers to Gentile unbelievers becoming New Covenant believers. This is an enormous development. It changes the very definition of what constitutes the people of God. We are justifiably proud to be Americans. I love my country. Can't find another one I'd rather live in. <laughs> For more than two centuries, to be free could find its definition in to be an American. For 242 years, people have known this. Did you know? that since the war of 1812 every war America has fought has been to gain the freedom for others obviously that includes a civil war but every other war as well World Wars 1 and 2 the Korean conflict the Vietnam conflict although <clears throat> we gave that one up was focused on allowing the South Vietnamese to keep their freedom that they should not be dominated by others and every war since then has had that as its purpose. In every case, other people's freedoms are being protected and almost always gained by us, Americans. And what happens to our enemies? Well, if you were the Germany or the Japan of World War II, America helps to rebuild your countries and within two decades you become the number two and three economic powers in the world. That has also been a consistent behavior of America. We don't take over other countries like was done by the British Empire from which we sprang. We build their economies and their government structure and allow them to be autonomous. That which constitutes America equals political and economic freedom. And we can be justifiably pleased to be a part of this way of life. Proud to be an American. This isn't July. <laughs> We're not close to Independence Day. What are we talking about here? It's like this. Let's go back to those old covenant Jews. They had even more to be proud of than we do. Because if someone wanted to become a Jew, they became the people of God. To be Jewish meant to be one of God's people. You want to have a relationship with God? You have to become a member of the nation of Israel. The promises of God came to Israel. The word of God came to and through Israel. The children of God were the children of Israel. Wow! 
And most of all, the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, came through the children of Israel. That's something to be proud of. To be an Israelite was to be a child of God. But that's not how the world saw it. <laughs> you notice how many people in the world do not see America as helping some say, we go to war just to protect our economic interests. It's fashionable, even in some circles in America, to say that. Come on, there are easier ways to do it than that. <laughs> and if that was our only interest, would we not demand control of those countries? Well, what about those early Jewish people? What did the people in the world think defined Israel in the first century? What did Jews think defined them? It should have been their relationship to God. And for many it was. Why circumcise your boys? Because that showed you were a person of God. Why dress like you do? Because that shows you're a person of God. Why restrict your diet like that? Because it shows you're a person of God. Why celebrate the holidays you do? <clears throat> well, because it shows you're a person of God. <laughs> but for many, maybe most, the actions themselves became the defining characteristic of Israel. Not the relationship with God it was supposed to show. They had lived this way for 1,500 years, 60 generations. Not our very lifestyles prove we are the children of God. The answer from the Jewish apostles of Jesus Christ? No. <laughs> all that we are, all that we were, is not important anymore. Only Christ matters now. And to this day, we live under the true freedom of Christ. So much so that we forget the shocking change that occurred when being a child of God's changed from being a Jew to believing in Jesus. You might be thinking right about now, is it important for us to know this? <laughs> Can't we just live in the new system and be blissfully ignorant of the old? Maybe so. But can we really understand our faith without considering from where it came? Well, apparently not. The Holy Spirit inspired one book of the Bible specifically to address this change from the old to the new. It was written specifically to Hebrews in the first century. But we can peek over their shoulders, as it were, and learn an amazing amount about our faith. Why our faith is so wonderful. Because many of them left that old faith to join the faith that we now share. The writer to the Hebrews shows why one should gladly leave behind 1,500 years of tradition and lifestyle to embrace this new covenant, to embrace Jesus. We cannot take a detailed look at the letter to the Hebrews over in the middle of the book of Acts. But this is Palm Sunday, the day thousands celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus in Jerusalem. Why? And at the end of the week, remember Good Friday, a celebration of that day Jesus gave his life to be the sacrifice for our sins. So I thought it might be good to consider the superior one to get a better picture of who Jesus is. And we might also spend a few Sundays discovering why these Jews would be willing to abandon the faith of their ancestors to embrace this new way. Maybe then we'll find out more about this new and better way that identifies us as the people of God. Right. 
So take a deep breath. We can go now. The book of Hebrews is actually a sermon. It was sent as a letter, but it was designed to be read to, as a sermon to groups of Jewish people. The writer has four main points. Chapters 1 to 5 speak of the superiority of the person of Christ. That's what we'll take a look at today. Chapter 6, he says that accepting Christ is necessary. You can't stay with the old system and remain the people of God. Chapters 7 and then 10 through 10.18 show how Jesus created this new covenant. And in 10.19 through the end, 13 are about the actual superior life in Christ. How he lived this new life. What is it? I originally thought, hey, it's a sermon. I'll just read it straight through. (laughs) Uh, But it's a a sermon specifically to first century Jews. We're not first century Jews. (laughs) It's going to need some explanation. First of all, the writer makes more reference to the Old Testament than any other New Testament writer. By far, one-third, nearly one-third of the book of Hebrews is Old Testament books. And then he uses a lot of phrases that Jews of that day understood. Many are strange and new to us. So we'll explore these as we go as well. Our author's discussion of the superiority of the person of Christ is truly amazing. And it starts like this. Hebrews 1.1, long ago. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Wow. Now, whoever wrote this sermon, and no one walking this earth knows for sure who it was, was an elegant writer. The Greek is superior to anyone else in the New Testament. It's in a completely different category. And he or she, uh, Apollos is the leading candidate, but Priscilla is a possibility, starts at the core of Judaism, the Hebrew Bible. He affirms that great truth prophets may have spoken the words but they are the words of God and then he says Jesus is a better revelation now wait even though the scriptures are the word of God yes first because of his deity he is himself God the son the world was created through him and it continues to exist because of him but he also became a man the exact imprint of his nature Jesus is the perfect man made the image of God. He is what Adam was supposed to be. (laughs) And he died for our sins. And he now rules with the Father in heaven. So this little section, by the by, introduces the entire sermon. And every point will be dealt with in more detail later. And later is now. First, our author discusses an understanding common in their day. Angels are truly amazing. But Jesus is superior to angels because he is the person of the Son. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, 
when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? There was a day when the Son took on human form and was begotten of the Father. That never happened to angels. And did you hear verse 8? Your throne, O God. (laughs) There's no way to say it more directly. The Son is God. That's certainly not true of angels. Also, the Son lived properly on earth like no one ever did. No angel ever lived as a human being. No mere human ever lived life perfectly. Did you catch that interesting term, oil of gladness? (laughs) It's a very Jewish letter. (laughs) We pretty much get the idea covered in goodness. But oil meant so much more to them. It covered, it made fresh, it cleansed. It healed. It improved the appearance. And even more. You can read this epistle a dozen times and and you'll still be catching new and wonderful truths. Our writer says, again, that the Son created everything and will outlast everything because He is eternal. In fact, He determines when any given thing will end. He rolls it up. He will overcome His enemies. Angels are not like that but were sent here to serve those who believe. First, those who believed under the Old Covenant. Now, those who believe in the Son. And now, suddenly, our preacher gives a warning. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. This is a great salvation. The Old Covenant provided a means to be God's people. And the Jews understood that angels were somehow involved in the writing of the Hebrew Scripture, what we call the Old Testament. But our Jewish writer says to his Jewish audience, if we say that old message was true and trustworthy because angels deliver it, and we reject this new message that was delivered by none other than the Son, we will be judged for it. And don't miss that signs and wonders statement. Were not prophets in the Old Testament characterized by signs and wonders? He says, so is this message, Israel. And no one less than the Holy Spirit is involved in the process. Now, any thinking Jew, well, any thinking person, would have a question. 
what is the purpose of the sons taking on humanity? Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The prophet Ezekiel, his title for the Messiah was Son of Man. Every believing Jew would know that. In fact, Jesus used that term as his favorite title for himself. The Son did become the Messiah, a man limited in his power and authority while he was on this earth. But not for long. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The Son became the Christ, Messiah, because he would taste death for everyone. That's Jewish speak for give his life to save our lives. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again... Behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For us to become brothers and sisters in Christ, he had to take on human form. Because Satan was right. We deserve death. And he is the master of death. He was the master of death. <laughs> but the Son would not leave us as slaves in fear, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Not only is Jesus superior to angels, he didn't come to help them, but rather the seed of Abraham. And his suffering and the temptation he endured made it possible for him to help those who also go through these trials. The son, our writer tells them, had to become a human like them because that was how he would help them out of this sinful world. But Abraham, Abraham was only the beginning. It was Moses through whom God gave the law that defined being a Jew live like this if you wanted to be a person of God. But Jesus is superior to Moses and the whole system. First, because he's superior to Moses in person, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, 
the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him and appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Jesus is the apostle, the sent one, and the high priest of this new covenant. It's pretty hard to miss this point. Moses is a mere human. He is a, a part of the house. Right? Jesus is man and creator, God, the builder of the house. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Moses was great, but Jesus is better. <laughs> and here is his first direct declaration of what defines a child of God. We are his house if we trust in Jesus as the Savior and as the Son of God. And now our writer reminds them of their history. You see, this isn't the first time God has redefined what it means to be his people, although it is the last time. He did it clear back when he defined with Moses what is now called the Old Covenant. And that first generation of people that were given the law through Moses, they rebelled. And they refused to accept it. And he warns this first generation of Jews after Jesus, don't you be like them. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, 
and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of the disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jews, listening to this sermon, were people who lived under the Old Testament system, like those first Jews who came out of Egypt into the Promised Land. But now the new covenant has been given, and they have a short window of opportunity to change their allegiance. It has not escaped the notice of many that it was almost exactly 40 years after Jesus ascended to heaven that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and never rebuilt. 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years of the temple is destroyed. I don't myself think that signaled the end of the opportunity for Jews to leave the old system for a new and better life in Christ. But it does make one think. It makes me wonder, is there a time limit for people today? At one point, does God finally say, that's it? I've given her enough time to consider this and it's over. She will not be saved. Is there a time beyond which men can't be saved? Maybe. But this very writer will soon say that that time is death for after that comes judgment. So if you're breathing, you still have a chance. <laughs> still, I wouldn't push it if it were me. <laughs> Besides, why would you? Look at how fantastic Jesus is. Certainly, he's a better high priest, our writer says, than any Israel ever had. Why? Because he came from heaven to earth. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Wait, let me get this straight. We're sinners dirty, disgusting, despicable. And we can approach God's throne with confidence. <laughs> How could this be? Because it's the throne of grace where we receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You've heard it before. We don't need justice. We need mercy. <laughs> And this high priest can supply that for us because he was tempted like us. So he can sympathize with us. That very much not like us. He never sinned. But Jesus 
didn't even take all this on on his own. God the Father appointed him high priest for every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he said also in another place, You were a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is like Aaron and his sons, in that he was appointed by God. But he's different than them because he is the son. You may have noticed that our writer often introduces themes to which he will return, like he did here with Melchizedek. That's, Melchizedek's a very important person in Jewish history. But the main point here is that God appointed Jesus as the high priest of this new covenant. Okay. And the sacrifice he offers is much better than anything offered before. His sacrifice gives eternal life. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The primary reason Jesus is the superior one is that through him alone do the children of God have access to eternal salvation. You see, all those other high priests offered the blood of animals. Jesus our writer would go into much more detail later, offered his own blood. He certainly was a high priest unlike any Jewish high priest who ever lived. And our writer ends his celebration of the person of the Son with a strange kind of warning. Well, maybe not so much a warning as a rebuke. He says that you have to be mature to understand all that he has said, let alone that which he will say. These are words to which we should all listen carefully. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The Jews of the first century had much, some of them all, of the Hebrew Bible memorized. They all knew the important passages of the word of righteousness. And he says to those citizens of Israel, you people are children, grow up. Uh, how is it that people who have attended synagogue all their lives knew the scriptures like we wish we did 
lived like the law prescribed, how could they be immature? How do Christians who have attended church all their lives end up being fat little babies? Remember that song? (laughs) How does that happen? Because they do not have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's the rebuke. I learned all that when I was a kid. I don't need to go over it again. There are people who've attended church for decades and yet have never read through the Bible even once. But this writer thinks they need constant practice. But is that all constant practice means, learning the Bible? Especially when you consider he said they should be teachers. Anyone who has been a Christian for more than a few months should be speaking about what they have learned with someone else. At least they should gather with others to do so. Married people need to be discussing the scriptures together. Families should be practicing together. Any group you are in should find itself in a discussion about biblical truth, whether they're Christian or not. If it doesn't ever come up, why isn't it coming up? Well, hey, you're here, so you are, in a sense already sharing to some degree. We're already doing that. So you're past all that. But do get more and better practice. I mean, we offer here many different ways for people to constantly practice what they've learned, to interact with other believers concerning the word of righteousness. And I'm betting God will give you even more ways to learn more of and to share more of your faith. And the good news is that if you're already sharing what you've learned, you're doing well. <laughs> so keep it up. Those Jews in the first century had to give up what most everyone thought defined them. But the same is true of every person who wants to follow Jesus. you got to give up that old life <laughs> and embrace the new. And it ought to be easy to do. Jesus is, after all superior to any angel no matter how great they are Jesus is superior to anyone and everyone he's better than Abraham better than Moses better than Aaron or any high priest he's certainly better than Buddha or Muhammad or Joseph Smith or Charles Darwin or Karl Marx or Sun Young Moon he's clearly better than Elon Musk he's better than anyone because after all he created all of them else. He is God. But he took on human form, endured temptations, suffered, becoming the perfect high priest, offering the perfect sacrifice himself. And so he provided forgiveness of sins, making eternal salvation, eternal life available to all. But anyone who wants eternal life must listen to and have faith in Jesus. And those who have this faith must constantly exercise it, practice it, so that they can teach others. Teach them there's a reason crowds cheered on that Sunday long ago. They might not have understood that they knew they should cheer. There's a reason tears fill our eyes on Good Friday. Jesus truly is 
We hope that you've enjoyed this message, first heard at Living Hope Church of Westport. If you'd like to support us so we can do more, well, you'll have to work at it. We have no one-click button for giving on our webpage, southbeachhope.org. We are a tiny church in a small town and simply cannot afford either money or time to set up such a thing. But at least with our modern technology and with the help of Sermon.net, we can share the good news with you and anyone around the world. Hopefully, we'll someday be able to worship God together in person, if not in Westport, at least in the rapture.